Well, good morning, everyone. How are you today? All right. I mean, uh, that's, uh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry to hear that things are going so rough. Uh, my name is Darren, and uh, I'm one of the shepherds on staff. Excited to open these two chapters with you today in our ongoing study of the book of Genesis. Uh, if you're a guest with us today, we're excited that you're here, and you won't have any trouble sort of picking up where we're at. I know it can be a little intimidating sometimes to jump in to a study in a book as large as Genesis at chapter 40, but uh, we're in a great narrative portion. Some of it may even be familiar to you, and, and it's relatable no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, even though it's a big chunk of text today. So we're looking at 40 and 41, and we're looking at these together because there's a very interesting sort of contrast, but there are also some really interesting, I think, uh, similarities in the two chapters. Both of the chapters deal with the interpretation of two uh, sets of dreams, basically. There's, there's a set of dreams in 40 and a set of dreams in 41, and Joseph is instrumental in the interpretation of those dreams in both chapters, but they're vastly different circumstances. So in 40, uh, and I'm, here's what we're going to do, rather than, read, uh, rather than read these chapters verse by verse, because there's a lot, I'm going to give you a quick summary of what happens, and then we'll go back and we'll look at specific sections as we walk through it. But basically in chapter 40, we pick up where we left off two weeks ago. So two weeks ago, we were looking at the story in, in Genesis 39 of Joseph and the favoritism, uh, the favoritism of his father a couple weeks before that. But his brothers turn against him. Remember, they sell him into slavery. He's hauled off to Egypt where he becomes a captain of the servants in Potiphar's house. If you'll remember that week, uh, that study two weeks ago, he was falsely accused. He's thrown into prison. And when we pick it up in 40... We find that, that Joseph is the captain of the guard in the prison now. So he's risen to a position of stature, even though he is still uh, in prison for crimes he did not commit. So he's there in prison, chapter 40. And uh, it'll tell us in 41 that Joseph is 30 when he rises to power in Egypt. Uh, so what we understand is that from the time he was sold, if you just kind of do the math, from the time he was sold until the time we get to chapter 40, we're talking about around 11 years. 11 years that he's either been a servant in Potiphar's house, a slave there, or he's been in prison for things he didn't do. 11 years of waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise in the, in the form of dreams. If you'll remember early on in our study of Joseph, he was actually given a set of dreams as well. And God promised him that he would be exalted and that, and that his brothers and his mother and father would bow down to him. So there are some things that God had said to him about his future that certainly have not come to pass. And in fact, the exact opposite has occurred. Joseph finds himself now here in prison for uh, a, a period of time, but he's been... He's been away from his family for 11 years. And while he's there, uh, it says that the cupbearer of Pharaoh and the baker of Pharaoh, both in food service, uh, they're put into prison as well. Now, we, we can imply from that that there was probably a time when Pharaoh got sick and there was suspicion of poison, although it doesn't say that in the text. We know these two guys were both put in prison for a period of time. And during the time that the cupbearer and the baker of Pharaoh were in prison with Joseph, they have these dreams, right? Each of them has a dream, and they're troubled by the dream. They want to know the interpretation of the dream. Joseph, being in proximity to them, gives them the interpretation of the dream. So for the cupbearer, he has a dream where there's a vine with three branches, and it blossoms, and it produces grapes. He uh, has this dream where he squeezes the, the juice from the grapes into Pharaoh's cup, and he gives it to Pharaoh. 
And Joseph hears that and he says, yeah, God has revealed to you what he's going to do. The three branches are three days. And in three days time, you're going to be lifted up and restored to your old position of honor in Pharaoh's house as a cupbearer. Congratulations, right? Well, when the baker hears that, you can read this in Genesis 40. The baker hears it. He hears there's a favorable interpretation. And he's like, okay, I'm ready to hear the interpretation of my dream, right? I also dreamed about three things. I dreamed about three baskets of bread and there were birds that came and they ate the bread out of the basket. So what's my interpretation? And Joseph goes, well, it's not so great. Well, the three baskets represent three days also, but in three days time, the Pharaoh is going to lift up your head as well. He's going to lift it up right off of your body and you'll be executed in three days time. Joseph uh, gives them the interpretation of the dream, both in a favorable uh, case with the cupbearer, but also in an unfavorable case with the baker. And those dreams come to pass. Now, interestingly, when Joseph is talking with the cupbearer in Genesis 40, he says to him, Hey, look, when you get out of here and you're raised back to a position of honor, remember me because I'm not supposed to be in prison. I didn't do anything wrong. In fact, I've been falsely accused. I'm not supposed to be here. I was enslaved by my brothers. They put me in prison, but tell somebody my story and get me out of here. So you can imagine that for Joseph, there was a little bit of excitement at the potential that that might be the avenue through which God was going to get him up and out of jail, right? But then it tells us at the end of Genesis 40, the cupbearer gets out. He goes back into the service of Pharaoh. And it says in the last verse of Genesis 40 that the cupbearer forgets about Joseph. So he's stuck for another two years waiting in prison. Now we go on to read in 41 that the Pharaoh himself has a set of dreams. Uh, In one of the dreams, there are some plump or attractive cows, it says, that then uh, there are seven of them and they are devoured by seven skinny, gross-looking cows. That's a dream I've had frequently. Uh, The Pharaoh has it and, uh, and he's troubled by it. He has a second dream in which there are seven plump ears of corn, beautiful looking ears of corn that are devoured by seven uh, ears of corn that look like they've been scorched by the east wind, it says. And Pharaoh's troubled by this dream and he can't find anybody to interpret it. And so uh, the cupbearer remembers and he says, oh, I remember my mistake. I was supposed to tell you about this guy I met in prison. He's a Hebrew and he interprets dreams. He tells the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh pulls Joseph up. And that's the section we just read in the first 16 verses. He looks at Joseph and he says, hey, can you interpret my dream? And I love Joseph's response. We'll talk about this more in a second. But Joseph's response is, no, it's not in me to do that. But God will give you the answer. God will give you the answer, right? So Joseph goes on to give him the interpretation. And essentially the interpretation of Pharaoh's two dreams are these. The seven cows and the seven years of corn that are fat and plump represent seven years of bounty. Seven years of plentiful harvest that will be followed by seven years of severe famine. And Joseph looks at Pharaoh and he says, God has told you by giving you two dreams that say the same thing. He's told you what he is determined to do and it is fixed and set and it will occur. So if you're a wise man, Pharaoh, you're going to find somebody you can put in authority who will save up food during these seven years of bounty so that during the seven years of famine, you will not go hungry. And if you're smart, you'll, you'll organize this well and you'll get it all staffed and you'll, you'll take care of it and you'll be fine. The Pharaoh says, well, who else are we going to find like this guy, Joseph, in whom is clearly the spirit of God? You can see that in 41. He says, I see the spirit of God in this guy, Joseph, who better to manage all of our storehouses than Joseph. He raises Joseph to the position of second in charge. He's elevated, right? At first in 40, he's forgotten. In 40, he's been falsely accused and he's not remembered, right? And he's left to sort of rot there in prison. He's waiting. But in 41, he's honored. 
And he's lifted up and he's remembered and he's elevated to a position of authority. It says that he's diligent in saving food. During that time, he has two sons through an Egyptian wife. He names them Manasseh and Ephraim. We'll talk about them in a second as well. And then the season of famine comes and it says during the season of famine, because of the faithfulness of Joseph and all of his hard work, there is enough food for the people in Egypt. And not only does he take care of the people in Egypt, but he has the ability to take care of what the, what the passage tells us is he's able to take care of people of the world, right? So there are people from all over who are blessed by the stewardship and the faithfulness of Joseph as the second in charge in Egypt. So I want you to see these two chapters in contrast because we have a chapter in which Joseph is neglected, like I said, and misremembered, and, he, and he's falsely accused and he's sort of forgotten. And then we have a chapter in 41 where he's remembered and he's lifted up and he's honored and he's given authority and power. They're, they're two different chapters entirely. We see the fulfillment of some of what God had promised to Joseph happened in 41, but in 40, that wasn't even on Joseph's horizon. And yet here's what I want you to see. Though we have two entirely different chapters with two entirely different sets of circumstances, what we see in the heart and the character of Joseph is the very same kind of character, the very same kind of conduct, the very same kind of integrity. In fact, the the title of my message this morning is same heart, different day. Same heart, different day. And it's relevant for us because the reality is that you and I go through seasons like this too. Now, I don't know if you've been waiting for God to answer your prayers for 11 years. I don't know if you've been forgotten for two years by somebody who said they were going to remember you. I don't know if you've been waiting for a new job or you've been waiting for a a spouse or you've been waiting to move into a different part of the country. I don't know what kind of waiting you might be in. But you might be in a season today where you feel neglected and you feel ignored and you feel like you've been uh, falsely accused and you've been set aside. You might feel like you're enslaved at the moment, right? There may be others of you who just this week found out you got a raise or just this week you found out that your investments paid off or just this week you found out that the girl you love agreed to marry. I don't know, but we go through this roller coaster, don't we? We have these ups and downs and what tends to happen is that our heart and our posture and our response, it sort of moves with the good times and the bad. You can talk to somebody and you can kind of tell what's going on in their life because their character changes and their conduct changes based on whether they're being remembered or forgotten, based on whether they're being falsely accused or whether they're being honored. And what we see in Joseph, and by the way, Joseph is a type, he's a foreshadowing of Christ. The character we see in Joseph in 40 and 41 is also indicative of the character of Jesus, but there is a consistency and a beauty to it regardless of the season that he's in. I remember when my uh, sons, Jack and Hank, were little, they were playing flag football at uh, Parks and Rec in Long Beach. And uh, one day they played a football game out there and, and it was an amazing game. Like they both scored touchdowns. They both had some incredible plays. Like very, it was just a, a really good game and we skunked the other team. It was kind of incredible. So as a dad, when we get in the car, I'm prepared to give that speech where you say, hey, when you win and when you're successful, you don't get prideful, right? You're not going to be arrogant. You're not going to look down on other people. You don't want to get a big head. You don't want to be boastful. You want to be, when you win, you want to be humble. I'm ready to give that whole speech. And we get in the car and my boys are in the back seat. Little guys, they're both practically in tears, right? And I'm like, hey, wh- why are you crying? Like, why are you upset? You guys had an incredible game. You scored touchdowns. It was an incredible day. And they're like, we got carrots in our snack bag, right? 
And they didn't care what, the hap- what happened with the score. They didn't care how they played. They didn't care about all the victory. All they were disappointed about was the fact that at the end of the game, they got carrots, which is not what they're hoping for. Similarly, like two weeks after that, we have the exact opposite kind of game. We get our hats handed to us. The other team just kind of wipes our team up and down the field. And on that day, as we get in the car, I'm prepared to give my kids the speech about being gracious losers, right? About not harboring grudges, about continuing to fight on. You know, you, you don't give up. It's not about winning the game. It's about how you play. I'm ready to give that dad speech. You've all heard. And I get in the car and the kids are like high-fiving and they're celebrating and they're excited. I'm like, I don't know what you're celebrating because that was a terrible game, right? And they're like, we got Oreos in our snack bag, right? And it dawned on me that for them, they didn't really care very much about how the game went. They didn't care whether they scored touchdowns or, you know, made great plays. What they cared about was get through the game to the snack bag at the end and cross your fingers there's going to be cookies in there, right? And sometimes our posture and our attitude is entirely dependent upon what it is we're hungry for, what it is we're chasing, right? What it is you're pursuing with your life. And that will change everything about the way you go into certain circumstances, whether you're being neglected, whether you've been forgotten, whether you're being dismissed, or whether you're being elevated and honored, right? Whether you're in a position of authority or or a position of dismissal, right? And so we want to look at this text because we recognize that there's something going on with Joseph we can understand. Something that's happening with him that can be helpful in shaping our own lives as disciples. Because we know that God refines all of us. Right? That God refines all of us who are his disciples, followers of Christ, are refined in the forge of life. And that means there's a little bit of fire, and that means there's a little bit of hammering, and that means there's a little bit of folding, and that means there's a little bit of crushing. We are refined in the forge of life, and sometimes that requires waiting. We already saw waiting in the life of Abraham and Sarai, didn't we? Abram and Sarai, or Abraham and Sarah, as they were told they would have a child. And then that didn't happen for a very long time. We see waiting in the, in the life of Joseph in this particular text. We could look later and see waiting in the life of Moses as he's in Midian for 40 years before he does the thing that God put on his heart to do it initially. We see waiting in the life of David where David is anointed to be the king of Israel and then he spends a long period of time just on the run from Saul who wants to kill him. It would have been nice if God had said, hey, you're going to be the king and that's going to happen tomorrow. We're having a party. Get on your best jacket. But God said, hey, you're going to be the king. And then there was a long period of time where all he was was the object of Saul's hatred and anger and ire, right? And in that waiting, there are times where even in the Psalms where David will say, I don't even know if I'm going to live to see the thing God promised me. We know that God refines us. And that's not just true for biblical characters. It's true for all of us that he refines us in the forge of life. And sometimes there are high points and sometimes there are low points. And all of those spaces along the the path... They change us. They transform us. They are conforming us to the image of Christ. James chapter 1 verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says you should be joyful when you face trials. You should be joyful when you're in the waiting. You should be joyful when the cupbearer forgets about you and you got two more years in an Egyptian jail. Well, it's, it's not always easy for us to be joyful, but the way to find joy is to understand some of the principles we see revealed in the life of Joseph and in Christ. I just want to look at five of them in the time we have here. Mentioned already that Joseph probably thought when he talked to the cupbearer in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 40 that this was his pathway out. 
He says in verse 14 of Genesis 40, only remember me, he says it's the cupbearer, remember me when it is well with you and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. Here also I have done nothing that they should put me in the pit. You can hear his confusion about his own position, right? You can hear him saying, I don't know why I'm in jail. I did the right thing. It feels like I was told that you do the right thing and you don't go to jail. But that isn't my experience. Will you please help? And then Joseph, after this time, is still waiting for God's perfect timing. So what are the keys here to having the right kind of heart? Or having the right kind of heart? Whether forgotten or remembered, whether accused or exalted. I'll say number one, and we see this all over these two chapters. Number one is no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, don't miss the opportunity to point away from yourself to God. If you're taking notes today, maybe you summarize that just by saying point to God. Or even better, glorify God. We've talked before about the fact that our lives exist for the purpose of worship, that we were created from the ground up, you and I, built by God for his glory. One of the things I love in the story of Joseph is that whether forgotten or remembered, Joseph is constantly pointing away from himself, very similar to one of my favorite biblical characters, John the Baptist. We've talked about John the Baptist before. John the Baptist was preoccupied. In fact, you can find him in lots of classical paintings with his hand. If you ever see a painting of John the Baptist in in old paintings, His hand is always doing this, pointing away from himself. That's how John the Baptist lived his life, right? Joseph does the same thing. I'll I'll just give you a couple of examples of this. Look at Genesis chapter 40, verse 8. In 40, verse 8, the cupbearer and the baker say to him, we've had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Joseph doesn't say, hey, I happen to have a special connection and I can interpret your dreams. He doesn't use it as an opportunity to capitalize on his own reputation or to build up fame or status for himself. What does he do? He goes, hey, you know what? God interprets dreams. Tell me what they are and we'll ask him, right? He's pointing away from himself to God. We see the same thing in chapter 41. In chapter 41, verse 16, which we read a minute ago, Joseph answered Pharaoh because Pharaoh said, can you interpret my dream? Joseph said, it is not in me. He's like, I can't interpret dreams, right? By the way, wrong answer when you're facing the Pharaoh. He says, I can't interpret dreams. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Once again, even in the midst of the situation he's in, he's not singing his own praises. He's pointing away from himself. That's 41.16. In 41.25, Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. He says, you've had these dreams, and while you've had two dreams, they submit one particular thing, and that has to do with the sovereignty of God, that he's fixed a thing in time and space. 41, 32, he says something very similar. 32, he says, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. That's a very interesting thing for Joseph to say, because if you remember back at the beginning of Joseph's life, he had two dreams that said the same thing. So it's very interesting for Joseph, at least uh, 11, probably 13 years on now, to say to the Pharaoh, hey, when God gives you two dreams that say the same thing, they will definitely happen shortly. Like after 13 years at least, right? But Joseph's confidence, what? In God's providence, in God's surety, in God's faithfulness, Joseph is pointing away from himself. So much so that then when Pharaoh is looking for someone to put over the storehouses and in leadership over Egypt, he says this in 41.38 about Joseph. Pharaoh says this, Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? 
That's something the Pharaoh says about a guy he just pulled out of prison. This guy has the spirit of God in him. We talk all the time at this church, and if you're new around here, forgive me, but you'll catch up to this. We talk all the time about the importance of the circles that God puts us in. That God has created each one of us uniquely to have a unique impact on a unique set of people. And those are the people that we're interacting with on a regular basis. They might be family. They might be coworkers. It could be people on your softball team or people that you work with at McDonald's or whatever. But God has put these people around us as an opportunity for us to reveal Christ. That as Christ is revealed to us and in us, then Christ is revealed by us to the people in our circles. What's, what's Joseph doing here? Even though he's been in prison, even though he's been neglected, even though he's been falsely accused, even though he's been set aside. And then once he's elevated and honored and being revered, what's he doing? He's taking the opportunity to point all these people back to God. Because it's not just good for them to remember that God is sovereign. It's not just good for them to remember that God is in control. It's not just good for them to know that God sees them and cares about them and has a plan for their life. It's good for him to remember that as well, right? Sometimes what we miss when we think about ambassadorship, we talk about the fact that we're called to reveal Christ to other people. And we sometimes forget the fact that when we're revealing Christ to other people, that's actually really good for us also. To remember who God is and that he is the fulfiller of dreams and that he has fixed things in time and space and that he does see us and care about us and he knows who we are. As we're declaring that to other people, it's a great reminder for us as well. Joseph in this particular text is a man who brings to the court of Pharaoh what I would call radiant peace rooted in confident expectation. Radiant peace, a peace that not only he carries, but a peace that radiates out of him into the lives of the people around him who don't know God, but they want that peace and they understand because of his declaration where that peace comes from. So first and foremost, when you're in the highs and the lows, forgotten, remembered, honored, dismissed, point to God. It's good for others and it's good for you. Secondly, in the text, the second thing I see that I love, he not only points to God consistently, no matter where he's at, but he also consistently loves others. He loves others. And that that might seem like, okay, we get it. Love others. That feels like it almost doesn't need to be said. But think about how cool it is. Back to Genesis chapter 40. Look at verse 7. This is Joseph in prison for 11 years. He's been elevated to a particular status, but it says in 7, he asked the cupbearer and the baker, he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? Okay, so it's kind of an interesting question, right? I remember one time, I used to be in a band, and a Christian band, and we, we traveled and did evangelism, whatever, and one time we were invited to play a concert at the Snake River Correctional Facility in Idaho, right? So that's a, that's a maximum security prison. There's all kinds of heavyweight, you know, difficult people there, and uh, they invite us to come in. They have to itemize every, every screw and stand and bolt on the drum set. Every guitar string has to be itemized. Like, to go into a prison and do a concert, it's very intense because you have to take everything out that you take in. They tell you before you go in, hey, just so you know, we don't negotiate with hostages, So if the uh, or we don't negotiate for hostages, so if the prisoners take you captive and they threaten to kill you, we just let them kill you. That's how that goes, and you're like, why am I doing this concert here again? But... Uh, we want to share the gospel with the people at the Snake River Correctional Facility. So on the day we're getting ready to go in, we show up at the prison, and I'm just supposed to go into the main office and sign us in, and then they're going to do all the, all the you know, examination stuff. But as I'm walking up to the front doors, 
Uh, they've got prisoners like in orange jumpsuits that are out and they're gardening in the, in the gardens outside the front door. And they've got prisoners who are sweeping the steps. You know, there's like prisoners doing different jobs. And in fact, as I get close to the front entrance of the prison, there's actually a guy in an orange jumpsuit uh, who's opening the door. And so he opens the door for me. And as I walk through, I, you know, you just do, there's like a thing you do. And I was like, oh, thank you. How are you today? And he goes, I'm in prison. And I was like, yeah, that's a stupid question, I guess. It's just the thing I normally ask, but I feel dumb. Now I see the orange jumpsuit, right? It's so interesting to me that in 40, verse 7, Joseph looks at these two guys who have likely been accused of poisoning the Pharaoh, and he can tell that they're sad. Not only can can he tell that they're sad, but he cares that they're sad. Despite his own grief, despite his own frustrations, despite his own wrestlings, despite the neglect that he's faced and the the things that have happened to him, he still has his radar up for the facial disposition of others. And not only does he see their sorrow, he inquires about their sorrow. He loves other people. It tells us in 41 that Joseph works hard to provide food for people all across the world, right? That he works hard to provide food for anybody and everybody. What do we see in that? Well, we see a foreshadowing of the heart of Christ that comes and works and sacrifices and dies to provide life to everyone who is starving, who is sinfully lost and broken. He loves others. He cares about other people. You know, where there is no knowledge of God, importance will be attached by people to anything. We're not talking a lot this morning about dreams and interpretations, although we could get in the weeds on that. But what I want you to see about the dreams in particular is that when people don't know God, they'll attach significance to whatever. They're looking for significance somewhere and somehow. And what Joseph so beautifully does is out of the love he has for other people, he comes along and says, I know you want to know what the dream means, but you need to know the giver of the dream. You need to know the God behind the dream. You need to know the God who is sovereign over all of history. That's who you need to know. He's pointing people to where real significance is to where real influence is, to where real truth is and real value and real hope. What we see in Joseph, secondly, this morning is what I would call revolutionary kindness rooted in humble solidarity with his fellow man. Again, if you've been around for a little while, you know that's important to me, that once we realize that not only are we broken, but everybody we know is broken, it becomes a platform from which to, to show love and compassion and kindness to everyone we meet. Joseph models that here. So not only is he pointing to God, not only is he loving others in the midst of the highs and the lows, remembrance and neglect. Thirdly, we see that he's a hard worker, right? He's working hard in both places. In the first case, in 40, he's the captain of the prison, like servants, right? He's the captain of the slaves in the prison where he's at. In the second case, he's diligently working to organize whole cities and whole economies to prepare for the famine. This is a guy who's working hard. And the reason that I point that out it's that sometimes both, uh, sometimes both in the midst of discouragement or in the midst of exaltation, we can get lazy, right? Sometimes when we've been neglected, we think, well, why would I do anything for anybody else? Why would I keep doing this if I'm just going to get punched in the face for it, right? Sometimes in the midst of the low times, we feel tempted to stop working. And sometimes in the midst of the high times, we think, you know what? I'm kind of a big deal. I don't need to work anymore. And what we see is that in Joseph's case, whether he's exalted or neglected, he is diligent to work. I've had some of you ask me about the tattoo on my arm before. And this, this tattoo is rooted in a Benedictine motto from the 15th century. What they would say um, in Latin, cruce libro et atro. Cruce libro et atro, which means the cross, the book, and the plow. 
And the thinking with the Benedictines was that a human being, man or woman, only glorifies God when they have these three things in balance. Faith, education or knowledge, and hard work. That you can, you can have all kinds of religion and all kinds of faith, but if you're lazy, you ruin your testimony. You can be a hard worker, but if you don't know anything about the world and you're not educated in any way, you sort of mar your testimony, right? You can have all kinds of education, but if you're lazy and don't have faith, you see how it works. That all three of these things work in harmony. And what we see in the life of Joseph in this particular case is that he gives spiritual counsel, practical wisdom, and physical effort in the highs and in the lows. Spiritual counsel, practical wisdom, the cross, the book, and the plow. And he doesn't give up. So we see him pointing away, right? We see him pointing away from himself. We see him loving others. We see him working hard. Fourthly, we see him minding his attitude. And I would say to us, in the highs and the lows, check yourself, right? Check your attitude. It would be so easy, wouldn't it, for Joseph when these two cupbearer and the baker, when they come to him and they go, hey, we had these dreams and we don't know the interpretation. That's why our face is downcast. We're worried about it. It would have been easy for Joseph to be like, dreams? Ha! Dreams don't matter. I had dreams when I was a kid. And then my brothers beat the snot out of me and they tied me to the back of a camel and they sent me here. I'll tell you how good dreams get you. Right? I'll tell you what good those are. Best forget about your dreams. They're just going to cause you problems. I can characterize that because I think we've all sort of been in seasons of our life where things don't go the way we want. And our response is to allow our attitude to sink to a place where we become cynical. We become critical. We become discouraging to other people who actually need us to be ambassadors of the love and hope of Christ. And instead, all we can think of is our own pain and our own suffering. I want you to see here in Joseph's life that he resists the opportunity to talk about his own negative experience. And instead, his attitude reflects hope. In the God who gave him those initial dreams. Galatians, you may be familiar with this verse, but Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Sometimes it's easy to get weary of having a good attitude, right? Sometimes it's easy to get weary of being hopeful and optimistic and and kind to other people because we just feel like we've been left in prison and somebody told us they were going to get us out and we're still there. And Joseph has a great attitude. He's working hard. He's loving others. He's pointing to God. And fifth and last, and certainly not most important, maybe most important, fifthly, he doesn't lose hope. He doesn't lose hope. He's got lots of opportunities to lose hope. But here's the key, I think, for Joseph. Joseph, he doesn't put his hope in the cupbearer. If he had put his hope in the cupbearer, he he would have to give up hope because the cupbearer was unreliable and forgot about him. When we put our hope in people, we put our hope in temporal things, when we put our hope in stuff that's flawed and frail, then we're destined to be disappointed. The key for Joseph is that through the highs and the lows, through remembrance and neglect, through honor and false accusation, whatever season he's in, he doesn't lose hope because his hope isn't in his situation. His hope isn't in the people around him. His hope isn't in that he's going to get out of prison in the next couple of days. His hope is in God. Psalms chapter 20, verse 7 says, Some hope in chariots and some hope in horses, but we hope in the Lord our God. We put our trust in the Lord our God. Well, why is that a recipe for ongoing hope through the highs and the lows of our lives? Because God is the only one who is consistently faithful. We talk in this church also a lot about the fact that all of us are busted. That all of us are broken. That we all bring our flaws and our foibles to the table. Now, there, there are also great things about us. We've got strengths and gifts and things that are spectacular about us too. As God has designed us. But the reality is, if you put your hope 
in broken human beings or in human institutions, if you put your hope in chariots and horses, yeah, you're going to lose hope. And so we put our hope in something greater than that. He doesn't have his hope in his family or in Potiphar's wife or the cupbearer. It's interesting, I was reading uh, in one of the the studies I was looking at this week, uh, a story about Adoniram Judson, who was a missionary in Burma. And after a period of time, he was put into prison for what he was doing. And somebody wrote him a letter and they said, what's your outlook? You know, you're in prison and you know, what's the outlook you've got? And he says, my outlook, I don't want to get the quote wrong. He says, the outlook is as bright as the promises of God. The outlook is as bright as the promises of God. This from a guy who's sitting in a Burmese prison, right? The outlook is as bright as the promises of God. The problem for us a lot of times, I'd say for many of us, the sentence is still true. We could say the same thing. The promise is we just don't believe in the promises of God. And so our outlook is as bright as the promises of God, but it's because we've relegated the promises of God to this lowercase minimal position in our lives. We need to elevate the promises of God and the character of God and the reality of who God is. And that then will change our outlook when our hope is in him. I didn't mention it at the beginning, but I, I will mention it now just to, as a reminder. I don't know if you, if, as I'm wrapping this up, if you remember at the end of Genesis 39, when we were studying that together, at the end of Genesis 39, after uh, he, he, Joseph had been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and thrown into prison, there's a really interesting phrase at the very end of Genesis 39. It says this. It says that the Lord was with Joseph and caused everything he did to succeed. That is a statement that was made about Joseph after he'd been falsely accused and thrown into prison. After he'd been falsely accused and thrown into prison, Moses, who's writing the book of Genesis, says, Hey, just so you know about Joseph, God was with him all the time and caused everything he did to be a success. Well, I kind of wonder, right? I kind of wonder as we get to Genesis 40, after 11 years of enslavement or imprisonment, I kind of wonder if we said to Joseph, hey, give us a sense of how you feel. You feel like God is with you always and he's caused everything you do to be a success? I think from a physical standpoint, he goes, does this, does this look like success to you? Because from a physical standpoint, it, it isn't the way his culture or ours would define success. And yet it's a true statement about God, a true statement about Joseph's life, that even in the jail, and even when he's forgotten, and even when he's falsely accused, and even when he's neglected, or vice versa, when he's elevated and remembered, and when he's honored, and when he's praised, and when he's given power, and all of these other things, the reality is that in both of those circumstances, God is with him, and God is causing everything he does to succeed. The catch is, That that success is not success in human terms or cultural terms, but it's in God's terms. What is God doing? Well, he's refining Joseph in the forge of life. I would guess that if I were to poll the room, there are many of you who don't feel this morning like God is with you and he's causing everything you do to succeed. But if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to him, then the reality is whether you feel it or not, he is with you. And he is causing the circumstances of your life to succeed. Even if you just lost your job. Even if you're struggling in your marriage. Even if you're not sure what's around the corner. Even if you've been sick. Even if you're going to the hospital. Whatever's happening. God is causing your endeavors to succeed. And that's success by his definition. Because he's got you in the forge. He's refining you to be conformed to the image of his son. He's going to use you and I as ambassadors. To point to him. To love our neighbor to work hard, to to mind our attitudes 
And to not lose hope, not, not hope in what the culture says is success, not hope in broken and frail things that will fail us, but hope in a God who keeps his promises. It's worth noting that every time Joseph says to someone else, every time Joseph says to someone else, hey, God gave you these dreams and he will bring them to pass. He's not just saying that to them. He's saying it to himself because he has dreams also, right? He had two dreams at the beginning of his life that have yet to be fulfilled. And so every time you hear him articulate it, hey, God, God gave you these dreams. He has a plan for your life and he will fulfill it. He's not just declaring that to his neighbors, the cupbearer, the baker, the Pharaoh, whoever. He's reminding himself, Joseph, bro, I know you're in jail, right? But God gave you those dreams and he will fulfill his purposes for you in short time. I, I want to say the same thing to you today. That whoever you are, no matter whether you feel like you're at the top of the roller coaster or at the bottom of the roller coaster, whether you feel neglected or remembered, whether you feel honored or dismissed, the Lord is with you and he will cause your endeavors to be successful by his definition of success. He's conforming you to the image of his son and me too. And we can put hope in that successful purpose that he puts to, to play in our own lives. Would you pray with me this morning? God, it's easy to sort of give a recipe for hope and to look at somebody else's life who had it. But practically speaking, for those in the room who are feeling hopeless this morning or who are feeling dejected or discouraged, uh, it, it is entirely possible that five points about some guy who lived thousands of years ago will, will not be practically encouraging. And so, God, I pray for your Holy Spirit to do right now what no sermon can do, what no Bible story can do. Will your Holy Spirit comfort the hearts of the hurting in this place, of the fearful, of the downtrodden, of the falsely accused, of the dejected. Will your Holy Spirit come alongside those women and men in this space, those who are watching online, will you come alongside them right now and say, I know it's hard to point to me or to love your neighbor or to have a good attitude or whatever, but I'm with you. And I'm, I am causing your efforts to be successful. Trust me. I pray that you would just help us to pick up what the Holy Spirit might put down in our lives and that you would bring comfort and peace to those in the room for whom this maybe seems trite or oversimplified or whatever. For others of us in the room who maybe are not at a valley, but maybe are in positions of honor or maybe we're having success. Maybe we just got the job we wanted or maybe we just uh, you know, landed the, the, the investment or whatever we were hoping for. God, I, I pray that you would remind us that the posture of faithfulness and service and kindness, it doesn't change because it's reflective of the character of Christ. Help us to be people who reveal you in our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes, whether we're at the top or at the bottom. We pray that in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.